What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of Down syndrome, storytelling, and picture books. Our first guest will be Vicki Elin, and we'll talk about Down syndrome and the Wonderwood College Bridge Program. Then we'll talk with Andy Ellis about how she tells hard stories. Our last guest will be Amy Johnson, and we'll talk about what makes a picture book good. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have an extended story time with Randy Evanson and his amazing story about his experience with an alligator. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. As a reader, writer, and someone who works with words every day in my job as a librarian, I find the intricacies of language fascinating. Words are amazing things that can convey so much in one small little package. One word I've been pondering lately is the word literacy. This word seems to be a very common one. I use it all the time as an educator, and even non-educators seem to have a sense of what this word means as they connect it to other forms of the word like literate or literature. Most people grasp a basic understanding of what it means to be literate, so they have some basic understanding of what literacy is. While on the outset, this word may seem to be pretty straightforward and comprehensible, the truth is the idea of literacy, especially in the 21st century, has taken on new and deeper meaning. In the past, literacy has been connected to just the skills related to reading and writing. But in reality, literacy is not just about those two things. In the 21st century, we are required to retrieve and assess knowledge in a lot of different formats and through a lot of different mediums. So today, the kinds of knowledge we gain through technological means is just as important as the kind of knowledge we might get through more traditional ways like print. So when we open our show to say that we're talking about reading, writing, thinking, seeing, speaking, and listening, we are really encompassing the whole gambit of literacy. I hope that as you engage with our show, that you will be able to expand your definition of what literacy and being literate is. And as you do so, you'll be better able to support the children in your lives in their own literacy development. And those are a few thoughts defining literacy from Rachel's World. Rachel's World. Here on Worlds Awaiting, we care about the literacy and success of every child. Some children have more challenges than others all the way through college. We're in studio today with Vicki Elin, an author and founder of the Wonderwood Academy, a school for children with Down syndrome. Welcome, Vicki. Thank you. Vicki, you work with a wonderful program that is so unique, and I'd like to introduce my listening audience to it. You work with a program with, with students with Down syndrome who are in 
essentially in college and working with college level courses to develop their skills and abilities, not only with daily living kinds of skills, independent living kinds of skills, but also with academic skills. So describe for us a little bit to start, what is this program that you work with? Well, it's called the Wonderwood College Bridge Program. It's intended to be a transition program for college for students who are college age but are not quite ready for college. This is a, a very small group of students who have Down syndrome who have always wanted to go to college primarily for social reasons. They're fascinated with learning, otherwise they wouldn't be here, but they're not ready academically. They're also not ready personally. They haven't, uh, they haven't prepared to live independently. They haven't prepared to make decisions like, I need to go to bed now because I have to get up early. <laughs> so this transition program is a, a broad program that teaches them not only how to be on campus and absorb as much as they can from their classes, but it teaches them remedial academic skills to help them read and write at higher levels, use their computers. And then it also teaches them independent living skills like cooking, like having a good health program when you're not at home with your family. And we were, we're strong on speech therapy in order to help them bridge that gap between themselves and the college world. And also safe community navigation to be involved with people around them. You're essentially taking them out of a very sheltered home and saying, here you go, big world. Now, <laughs> here's all the skills that you need to be safe and happy. That seems so complicated. <laughs> I mean, I, I even think of, of students that aren't dealing with Down syndrome who have struggles with those types of things. And so I just think it's wonderful that you have this structure that you're allowing these students to move through. So what what would be your ultimate goal with this? Is it for them to be able to live independently and go to college or you know, anywhere in between with that. What, what, is, what is the outcome? That would be my ultimate goal, but I'm not sure that all of the students will achieve that full independence and full integration in regular college classes. Um, they may be in this program for several years, and it will be at an individual level that we decide you're ready to move on. But um, for most of my students, it would be somewhere between that, that they can safely and happily live with roommates take a class or two, maybe for the rest of their lives and just keep learning. I love that you're tailoring this to the needs of the individual and saying, you know, this, this is the ultimate goal and, but there's going to be a string mm -hmm. of, of abilities and of time that will take us to get there. As you've worked with these wonderful students and I had the honor of, of visiting with them and being able to have a little interaction with them because they're taking a children's literature class. What are some of the joys that you see as part of this program? What are the thing what is the things that makes you happy as you work with these students? Well, I love how proud they are of themselves. <laughs> They're very motivated by being a college student just like all the other college students. And you should see how proud they are of every BYU t-shirt that they own and their BYU ID cards that they show strangers on the shuttle. They're so glad to be a part of this group. I have one student who says almost daily, I love everything about this. This is my dream. And it's pretty hard not to love working with students like that. 
with that joy and wonder, you couldn't not love working with them. And we had, a, like I said, we met and had a wonderful visit together because they're taking a children's literature class. And we had just a wonderful discussion, particularly with that class as they've been taking children's literature. What are some of the joys and excitements that they've had in discovering the wonderful world of children's literature? We, this class starts out with picture books and books for very young children. And I was afraid that they would feel that we were talking down to them because they often feel like people treat them as children when they want to be adults. Um, but when we said, nope, we're going to go on to more difficult books later, but we're starting with this because they're fun, they felt free to just enjoy the books. And we read Eric Carle with just as much joy as any six-year-old. It was, it was a fun journey. That journey is... That journey is so fun for so many reasons. But what challenges did you face? What were some of the challenges they encountered in this class? Well, this class became the basis for our reading comprehension class and our writing class later in the afternoon. So in order to prepare to write book reports on over 40 books for this class, we had to go back to basics and talk about plot and character and what's the point of this story and what would someone learn when they're reading this story and um, combine a lot of skills that they may have missed over the years that now they're needing. That scaffolding, I think, is so important where you start at the basics and then build up. And a, a lot of a lot of kids miss that, particularly mm -hmm. students with disabilities don't always have that basis. So I love that you started small and then grew into other big things. As you went through all of the great books, the 40 books you have to read for this class, what were what were some of their favorites that they read? Um, let's see. They, <laughs> let me talk first about a couple of books that they haven't loved. We've mentioned before that people with Down syndrome are very emotionally sensitive. They don't become as hardened to the difficult things in life as you and I do. So books that we think treat death, for example, very positively, they consider just devastatingly sad. In fact, that's the most common reason that they give for rejecting a book that I've suggested or that would be an option. They say it's too sad. So the books that they have loved have been the fun ones with all the happy endings. They love all of the fairy tales and folk tales that we went through in one of the early chapters. And then when we've come to the end, um, they've, they mostly love the school stories. They feel a part of all the kids in high school and the kids in college who are struggling with day-to-day -day things but end up with friends and being happy. I love that kind of contrast that there are books that they loved and books that they didn't love quite so much. And I, I think that's something we need to be open about as we talk about books that we don't all have to love the same books. So was there a specific book that they that they particularly struggled with? You know, it's surprising, but they really struggled with the book Wonder. Maybe not so surprising because it's someone about a boy who doesn't fit in and may not be as accepted in the social circles because of who he is. Um, and they may have identified with that as as a type of disability and things that they had struggled with. All, all of my students found the middle part of that book very sad and had a hard time getting to the end. They, they liked the end. They felt like it was a, a good finish, but all of them wanted to quit halfway through. It was just too hard. That is so interesting because you would think that with 
their disabilities that they would kind of see themselves expressed in that book. But they obviously didn't. They obviously saw it much more contrasting in that and something that wasn't quite as connecting. So I think that's a wonderful insight to how kids read that sometimes they connect and sometimes mm-hmm. they don't connect. And, <laughs> and we as adults need to be open to that. And we need to be able to express that, particularly in this class. I think that would, would be one of the things that you would want them to do is to really express why they didn't like that either verbally or in written form. So how did you do that? How did you help them get to that analysis place where they get to the middle of wonder and say, I don't want to finish it, but, but then pull them through so they can at least see where the end is and then maybe have a little more objective view of what they're reading. That's exactly it. You said that well. It's looking forward to the end. And we don't like suspense. If you're sad, you don't. You want to know that it ends happy. <laughs> and so we talked about the end. And most of them did see the movie, and they knew that at the end he was going to have friends, and that's what got them through. So we talked about that in the middle. But they just felt like they would know how it felt to receive mean notes, and they would know how it felt to have your friend say something mean about you. So they, they, they really took that to heart. And that is so true about books, right? They they impact us. They mm-hmm. let us take the t- to heart and they teach us about the world around us for good or ill. Mm-hmm. Vicki, as we close our conversation today, tell us one thing that you have learned through this experience working with these wonderful young women. What is one thing that you have learned that you would like to share with our listening audience? The most important thing I wish I had known if I could go back 15 years when my daughter was still learning the basics is that whatever anyone said to you about a plateau or a limit to her capabilities, to ignore that because they can go so far beyond what anybody thinks they can do and that their insights may not be well expressed or articulated But they see the world in a way that we should be seeing the world. And that if we limit them and their learning and say, let's just move on to vocational skills and skip all these academics, we're keeping their world narrow. And if we agree that there are no limitations, if we just work hard enough to overcome these things that are difficult for them, their worlds will be as broad as ours. Vicki, that was beautiful. You're going to make me cry. <laughs> because I, I do think that that's so true. Sometimes we limit our children in very severe ways. And I saw that firsthand in working with your students. They have limitless possibilities ahead of them. They are amazing, incredible young women and are you know going to take the world by storm. I'm certain of that. So thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us and helping us to see how we can have a broader vision, not only for ourselves, but for all of the children in our lives about what they are truly capable of. Thank you so much. Thank you. Vicki Elin is an author and founder of the Wonderwood Academy, a place that helps Down syndrome children succeed. Now we have Randy Evanson to tell us a true story from his childhood that includes an alligator. Let's take a listen. I went to school at the West Point Elementary School in West Point, Utah. In West Point, we have more cows than we have people. (laughs) At the time, it was a very small community. The principal of the of the school is Miss Dora Bybee, and she was also the first grade teacher. Miss Bybee was my mother's first grade teacher and my grandmother's first grade teacher. So you have a sense of how old she was when I was in first grade. 
Miss Bybee always had show and tell. I'm sure you are familiar with that as well. It's not in the school curriculum today, but when we were young, show and tell was important. One day I went to my uncle Gary's veterinarian shop. And when I was there, I saw over in his shop, there was a bucket, just a regular old tin milk bucket. And I looked inside of it and there was a small alligator, a baby alligator. Now, typically he worked on uh, large animals, uh, cows, horses, pigs, farm animals. But I don't know why he had a small alligator in a bucket. When I looked at the alligator, I thought, I am an expert at reptiles. I have read at least three books from the library. I know all about them. And I said, can I take this, Uncle Gary, to show and tell? He said, yes, you can. You feel free to do it. And I reached down to pick up the alligator. It was probably only about eight inches long. But it opened its mouth, and I saw sharp, white teeth clamped down. And I thought, whoa, that thing's going to bite my arm completely off. And I didn't want to touch. I said, never mind. I don't want to take it. I don't want to take it. And Uncle Gary said, you'll be just fine. Just hold it by its handle, the bucket by the handle, and you'll make it fine. I took the alligator home from his shop and brought it into my home. And my mother said, what you got there? And she said, it. I said, I have an alligator. My mother said, you have a what? Get that thing out of here. And I said, Mom, Mom, you don't know that much about reptiles, but I do. We live in Utah. If I took it outside, it's going to freeze to death. It has to be in the house. She said, then put it in your room and close the door and do not let me see that. Well, that's exactly what I did. I put it in my bedroom and it was fine there until... It got dark, and at night, I was laying in my bed and could hear the thing moving in the bucket, and I thought, oh, no, in the morning, I'm going to wake up, and I'll be dead because the alligator will have eaten me. But I did wake up, and I wasn't dead, and the alligator was still in the bucket. When I came out to go to have breakfast, I told my mom, Mom, you, were, you will need to take me to school today. I can't ride the bus. If I take my alligator, my show and tell on the bus, everyone will see it and it will and it will be ruined. They they you have got to take me to school. My mother said, I am not taking you to school today. You got the choice of getting on the bus or walking to school. I said, Mom, I can't walk to school. She said, Well, that is what you're choosing because I am not taking you. And I thought, Oh, I had a better idea. I thought I guess, I'll roller skate to school. Now, roller skates in the 50s were much different than they are now. We didn't have wheels attached to shoes. They were flat, and you wore your regular shoes. You put those roller skates up against your shoes, and you turned a key, and then they would clamp onto your regular shoes. I put the roller skates on, and I put the alligator, the bucket, in the crook of my arm and began roller skating to school. Now, one thing you have to know about West Point, Utah, is there were no sidewalks. I had to roller skate down the middle of the road. 
There weren't that many cars, so I would stay on one side of the road, and if a car was coming, I would move to the other side of the road, and I'd go back and forth as I was going to school. But all of a sudden, I looked up and saw the school bus coming in one lane in front of me. As I turned around, there was a big truck coming in the other lane. I thought, oh, no. What, what do I do? Do I just stand on the yellow line and hope that they whiz past me? I thought, that's not a great idea. I, I chose to slide over on the side of the road where the school bus was coming at me. But Blair Dahl, our bus driver, could see me, and I could see him. And as he was getting closer, he waved his hand and waved me to get off the side of the road. And I thought, oh, this is this is terrible. He's a he's a road hog. I need some of the space on this road too. But I did step over a foot or two, and he continued to wave and wave at me to get further off the side of the road, until he was right up upon me. And he took his great big bus driver hand and he pushed it on the horn and honk, and it scared the living daylights out of me. I jumped and fell into the ditch that was right there on the side of the road. As I was getting up out of the ditch, it didn't have water in it, but it was muddy, and I was brushing the mud and the muck off, when all of a sudden I thought, where's the alligator? It's not on my arm anymore. And as I looked up at the side of the ditch, there it was, on the side of the road, upside down. You never know what's going to happen with that alligator. We'll hear more of Randy's story later. Books are crucial to the development of a child. They can introduce concepts that reflect reality and help our children understand issues of everyday life in a very safe environment. Today, we're talking about why these stories are so important. We're in studio with Andy Ellis, an author who writes realistic stories for children. Welcome, Andy. Thank you so much. Andy, you write realistic fiction, and you don't shy away from the realities of life in that realistic context. And I'm really grateful for that because I think that's important for kids. Um, I don't think we can have, you know, flowers and sunshine and unicorns in everything because the world just isn't that way. Mm -hmm. And these kind of realistic stories that, that take head on some very realistic issues is extremely important. So why do you pick to write these kinds of stories that are very realistic and tackle some really significant issues? I think um, it's a good question. As a child, I was, I've always been drawn to the realistic stories and I've always been drawn to the struggle. Like if I think about some of the earliest books my mom used to read to me, even Corduroy, if you know the book Corduroy, about a bear in a, in a department store and he wants the girl to buy him, you know, and she won't. She wants to be picked and she doesn't because her mom won't let her and also because he's missing a button. And that seems kind of a simple story. But for me, that really resonated because everyone wants to be picked and everyone wants to be chosen and to be loved. And, and we all kind of feel like maybe I'm not good enough. And I remember really worried about Corduroy and feeling connected to his story and and worrying about the girl because she didn't get the bear. I don't know. I always just had a lot of emotions when I read books and when I – and that might be part of why I write what I write. Um, or like Iris sleeps over. He wants to sleep over but he's embarrassed that he has his bear and maybe his friend won't 
won't accept him and that maybe he doesn't want to leave his home, but he wants to be with his friends. And that story, too, is another one where it's like you want to fit in in the world, but you also have these things about yourself. And I guess the bottom line with those books and with the books I try to write is like, if you really knew me, would you still love me? You know, and and we go through a lot of hard stuff and we have things that we we have to endure and and every day is a struggle, whether it's small, like missing a button or, or not wanting anyone to see my teddy bear or my mother has depression or I'm struggling with, you know, um, anxiety or things like that. I think kids deal with things every single day. We deal with things every single day. And so for me, I love to read books um, like those those picture books that I mentioned, but also when I was a teenager, books that I connected with, or even when I was in, like, I loved Ramona because I felt like Ramona was trying so hard. And she says, mom, give me a hard boiled egg because all the other kids have a hard boiled egg. And then it turns out that her mom forgot to boil the egg and she smashes it on her head. And that kind of stuff was happening to me all the time, not specifically with the egg, but the emotion of like not fitting in and trying so hard or wanting to be loved. And I feel, I felt comfort in reading those types of books. And I, felt that as I got older, I still feel comfort in, in reading novels where I feel connected to the characters and I, I see them struggle and I see them triumph. I see them enduring through hard things and I know I can endure through hard things and I feel less alone. And so for me, it's important to tell stories like that so kids can see that it's okay to still want your teddy bear and other kids still want their teddy bear. They're not the only ones who want their teddy bear and it's okay to act, you know, do embarrassing things, you'll still be loved by your teacher and by your mom and, you know, hopefully. And so for me, telling those kinds of stories, I just gravitate to that kind of story and I gravitate to reading those kinds of books. That comment that it helps kids feel less alone, I think, is so significant, at least to me, because particularly for kids today, I think that that's a great thing for them. And and oftentimes, some of these issues, they don't talk about to adults, or they don't know how to process the emotions. Maybe they will talk about the situation, right. but they won't process the emotions. And, and having these other characters that are going through things, emotional things that are similar to them, I think is really cathartic and yes. really empowering for children. So do you set out with that in mind as you start writing of, of this context to say, you know, I want to empower this emotion or this emotional context? Or is it more about the story and the plot first? And then you say, okay, this is, this is going to go on top of it. These, these emotions are going to be conveyed through that. Do you know, it's always about the girl or the boy. It's always about the main character and it's always about them dealing with this. So it's, I'm never that great at plot, but I think I, where my strength is as a writer is the emotion and who are these kids and what do they want and what are they struggling with and how are they going to try to make it through? And for me, that's really the core of the story. Honestly, sometimes my editor's like, you can do the emotion. You, we need to figure out the more physical stuff, which <laughs> which maybe some writers would be the completely opposite. But for me, I I that's where the core of my writing is 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 who is this this kid and what are they going through? And I think then all the other stuff kind of comes comes with that. When when I talk about your books to people, it, it's it is a little bit challenging because I say, oh, this book is about depression, or this book is about <laughs> yeah. death, or this book yeah. is about you know, and I'm like, whoops, that's not <laughs> what I meant at all, right? Because yeah. it 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 it's hard to characterize the plot of your books right. without that emotion, sure, because. The, the joy of your books, at least for me as a reader, is that it is about the emotion, but it's about all of the emotions mm -hmm. that go in with these situations. It's about the sadness and the anger, but it's also about the joy and the hope, which I think you can't not 
take you know, in its kind of whole context. And I know some readers will look at that and say, oh, I don't want my child to read a book about, you know, depression, or I don't want mm-hmm. them to read a book about death. But the reality is you do want them to read mm-hmm. that book because it is about hope at the very basis of that. Is that a fundamental emotion for you, those kinds of joys and hopes and the, the playful nature of childhood that you're trying to bring forward and to help see the, the positivity that we can bring through these kind of negative situations? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't start a book hoping it will be sad. I mean, really, you mentioned everything is fine. And I thought that was a kind of a funny book because I loved Mazzy. Yeah. I loved her. She was hilarious. She was so weird. She was doing crazy stuff. She was, you know, hanging out with the neighbor across the street and just she was being crazy. And I remember um, I did an interview and and the the gentleman who was asking asking me questions. He's like, I was so upset. I threw the book across the room. Did you mean to make me that sad? And I was like, what? No. I set out to tell a story about a resilient kid who who just, you know, deals with hard stuff, but she's funny and she she has a friend and she wants to have more friends and she's working hard. I mean, it's never about necessarily the it's never about the sadness. It's about it's about working through hard stuff. And I think for me, I'm hoping that kids can see, even if they're not going through that type of situation, they can start to have empathy for kids who are. And they can see that maybe even if they hear about, it, about oh, so-and-so has depression or their mom died, you can hear that. And it's hard to kind of figure out what that means. But if you read a story and you can actually get into it and see what that might feel like, then you can actually maybe understand the kid next to you who might be going through something similar. So, and you can also see that, hey, they're making it and they can do hopscotch and they can kick the ball and they, you know, they are just like me, but they're going through hard stuff. It might be different, but we're the same and we, we all want to have joy. We want to have hope. And so, yeah, the books do have hard things, but I think in the end, I hope that it comes through that these are, these are hopeful stories. They're stories of love and connection and working through things and, a way for kids to be able to connect with each other through talking about stuff that maybe we don't normally talk about or even just thinking about these situations and what they would do in that situation, how they could help others so that there can be hope in real life, not just in the novels. That's one of the things I love about stories and your books in particular is that emotion is so contextual, right? You can't just say, I'm happy. There's a context Mm -hmm. to that happiness. Or you can't say I'm angry. There's a context to that anger. And stories help us provide that context. And I think particularly for kids who are developing their social and emotional skills, their social and emotional literacies, seeing the complexities of the context is so important because they have to understand that – you know, this situation isn't black and white. It's not, oh, my mom, you know, is is dead or, oh, there's mm-hmm. depression in this family or anything like that. There's so many other things. So how do you balance all of that kind of contextual information with all of the characters and all of the aspects of the plot and then the, the, the characters themselves and how they're going through that? How do you get that perfect balance? Because I think you do achieve it. Um, and maybe you, can't you. Artic- <laughs> yeah, maybe you can't articulate how you do that. But, but how do you look at that as you write to, to achieve that kind of perfect balance of this is the context that I'm trying to show. And I'm trying to show the resilience of this young person in this context. So I think it's a great question. Um, one of my my first book is about a boy who gets bullied at Scouts, which isn't a scenario we never we necessarily hear about a lot. But I really wanted to make sure to show that the bully Bruce is just a kid too, and he has a struggle that he's going through, and his choices, 
he's not just a bad kid. He has hard things also. And like you said, there's context in all these things that we do, these hard things. And it's not just, oh, he's bad and he's good, but that these characters are complex and there's a lot going on. Um, I One of my favorite um, novelists, Elizabeth Strout, talked about how she loves every one of her characters no matter what they do. And I, I think that kind of encapsulates how I feel about my characters, whether they – are in the novel or the ones who are depressed or, you know, or whatever, they're still, I still love them and I still feel compassion for them. And I think that's important. Even the bully, he's having a hard time with his dad and how does his dad act and where did his dad get that? I mean, there is context to everything and to all the people we see on the street or the people who treat us in a certain way. If we, I always try to take a step back and think, okay, there's more to this than just, they're probably in a bad mood or something probably happened. And the more that I feel like I can do that as I'm an interacting in the real world, the more it can come out in my novels. It's always obviously a challenge. But with my characters, all the characters in the book, I try to, like you said, look at the context and try to look at them as more complex than just a bad guy or a bad girl or whatever. I I think particularly in realistic fiction, we can't have pure evil. Right. I think think in fantasy you can, right? Mm -hmm. Fantasy or fiction, you know, you can have pure evil. But that's not the way the world is. I mean, I don't think anybody with maybe a few exceptions right. that we might discuss some other time yeah. <laughs> uh, is, you know, is, has been pure evil. Right? right. And so I love that sense that you bring the goodness and the badness and the complexities to the table. Thank you, Andy, for being the kind of author that provides these safe places to help our children build empathy and strength as they grow. I appreciate your stories and all that you have to offer. Thank you. Well, thank you. Andy Ellis is an author of some pretty amazing books. Now, let's hear exactly what happened with that alligator with the rest of Randy's story. I thought, I I don't know what I'm going to do. If I go over and pick up that bucket, then I have to pick up the alligator and put it inside the bucket. But the alligator is going to bite me. If I do that, I I thought, I don't have enough courage to do this. I can't possibly do this. So I left the bucket and the alligator upside down on the road and roller skated like lightning to West Point Elementary School. When I got there, Mr. Thurgood, our custodian, was outside sweeping the floor or the steps on the building. And I said, Mr. Thurgood, Mr. Thurgood, there's an alligator down here on the road and you've got to come help me get it. Mr. Thurgood, I need your help. Please help me. Come get the alligator. He said, Randy, there are no alligators in Utah. I said, yeah, there is right down here on the road. It's in a bucket and it's upside down and I'm too scared to get it. I finally talked to him and, and convinced him that he needed to come get the alligator, which he told me he would. When he finished his work, he told me to run on into Miss Bybee's classroom and he would take care of it. When I did go into Miss Bybee's classroom, everyone was quiet. The seat, they were all doing seat work and that was up on the board, what we needed to do, and I just got busy. It had been a little while when I heard the broom that Mr. Thurgood had coming down the hallway, and I could see him through the open door and said, Mr. Thurgood, Mr. Thurgood, did you get my alligator? And he whispered back, not yet. I said, you got to go get it. you got to go get it. I waited and I waited. He didn't come with my alligator. Finally, it was recess time. Miss Bybee excused us to go to recess, and we all ran outside. But I ran outside to find Mr. Thurgood. 
He wasn't in the back of the school. He wasn't over by the playground equipment. He wasn't out front by the the flagpole. I didn't know where he was. Actually, he was getting the alligator at that exact moment. He came back with the alligator, and we were still at recess. He came into our classroom, and there was no one there. He thought, I'm not sure where Randy sets. So he put it on Miss Bybee's desk, and he found a large book to put over the top of it so the alligator would not get out, and he left. A few minutes later, Miss Bybee blew the whistle, and we all lined up to come inside. She gave us instructions to stop in the hallway and to get a drink. And she went into the classroom. While we were outside getting a drink, she came into the classroom and she saw on her desk there was a bucket that had not been there before. She went over to the bucket and she lifted, she lifted the book right up. Now, apparently there is only one thing in the world that Miss Bybee is afraid of, and that is alligators in buckets. She screamed her head. The roof practically lifted right off the building. And all, we didn't need a drink at that moment. We ran into the classroom to see what Miss Bybee was screaming about. We all stood around and said, cool, cool. That's wonderful. Look, there's an alligator. And all my friends were so excited. But Miss Bybee, she was not. She yelled, who brought this alligator to school? My friend said, not me, not me, not me, not me. When she came to me, I also said, not me. I didn't bring it. Mr. Thurgood brought it in. And she said, who does this alligator belong to? And my friend said, not me, not me, not me. And I said, not me, because it was my uncle's. It wasn't mine. Finally, after everyone, no one committed to owning this alligator, she looked right at me. I must have looked guilty. She said, Randy, did you bring this to school? Uh, sort of, kind of, yeah, I think so. She told me to call my mom and have her get the alligator. And I never did get to tell these kids about the wonderful world of reptiles and show and tell that day. come in many forms, from simple to complex. The first books our kids usually encounter are picture books. But what makes a picture book good for both kids and parents alike? Today, we're in studio with Amy Johnson, a mommy blogger, avid reader, and book lover. Welcome, Amy. Thank you so much. I am excited to chat with you today. You are just a really strong advocate for literacy and reading and just a mother who just loves books. And I just think this is so exciting (laughs) to share with our listening audience kind of this personal experience that you have with this journey that you've taken. And I know that we're going to have some fun talking about great books that we love. Yes, of course. So this is going to be very exciting um, to to chat today. So let's start off. Why don't you just maybe kind of introduce yourself to our listeners and tell Tell us a little bit about your background and why do you think that this area of reading and literacy and books is so important, particularly for kids? Sure. So my name is Amy and I live in Salt Lake City um, with my husband and our four little boys and soon to be fifth little boy (laughs) in a couple of weeks. Um, And so I've always loved reading ever since I was a little girl. 
Um, and then when I went to college, I actually majored in music and I kind of forgot that I loved to read because I was so busy with practicing and just my classes. Um, but then right after my first son was born, I um, kind of just had a reawakening to that love because I felt just a little bit like I was getting into this rut of motherhood, which sounds like I wasn't enjoying it. And I was, but I just felt like I wasn't learning as much anymore and um, wasn't able to pursue some of my interests. And I realized that reading would open that door for me again. And so I started just reading um, so much. And then, of course, that naturally went to reading to my son. And I I discovered that as a mom, um, reading is the way that one of the ways that I show my children I love them. And I know that every mom has a way that works best for them. And some moms are really great with playing with their kids or with coming up with adventures. And um, I think I'm a little bit of a quieter person than that. And so reading has been the way that I show my love for my kids because um, I can cuddle up with them with a book or, um, you know, we can um, – I lost my train of thought. Um, we I can talk about new topics with them. We can discover new things together through books. And um, it's just been become a part of our family culture too, just inside jokes or um, just referring to some of our favorite characters. So it's just been a great way for me to be able to show my love for them and be able to spend time with them in a way that um, has a lot of quality to it. So... I, th- I think your experience is dead on. And I think that that's one of the things I love particularly about this sharing books as a family, that it just becomes that sense of love and mm-hmm. connectedness and, and provides that sense of family culture. I know particularly when kids are young, we we focus mainly on picture books and um, reading aloud and those types of things. Right. So what are some of those favorites that you started out with when you started out reading to, to that first son of yours? What were some of those favorites that you started out uh, sharing as part of this loving culture you were building? Right. Well, and a lot of it, I mean, I was discovering along the way fun books as we were reading and I would go to the library and just randomly choose (laughs) books off the shelf and that way would find some that we loved um, before I really started knowing um, where to find good recommendations. But I remember one of our very first favorite books was called Hooray for Fish by Lucy Cousins. And that has remained a family favorite um, with each of our kids as they've... um, hit kind of like six months. They just love that book so much. And I think it's just because Lucy Cousins illustrations are just bold and bright and fun. And um, there's a lot to look for in those pictures, too. So that has always been a favorite in the early stages. I love Lucy Cousins, too, because you're right. Her her pictures are bold and bright, but there's so much to look for, right? Because they're simple yet complex, which is, is kind of hard to explain on the radio yes, how that exactly. works. So, if, you know, if our listeners haven't looked at Lucy Cousins, it's wonderful. And they're perfect for that kind of six, eight, ten month age right. range. Just beautiful connections like that. And beautiful read-alouds, too. Yes, 
Yes, so fun. Well, and I was also going to say, so my, so it is really hard to choose a favorite picture book because I have a million that I love. But if I had to only choose two, I can narrow it down to my top two. That's you can? Actually I'm easy. shocked. Yes. I can't do that. <laughs> because I have two that I just love and would I could read them and look at them forever, and I don't think I would ever tell my kids no if they asked me to read it one more time. Okay, we're on the edge so, of our seat. Let's hear it. <laughs> Let's see if you know these two. I'm sure you do. Um, the first is The Seven Silly Eaters by Marianne Hoberman and illustrated by Marla Frazee. And that book to me is a p- perfect picture book. It is a fun story. It's about this family. Um, and they end up, by the end of the book, they have seven children. But the children gradually join their family throughout the book. And each child is um, a fairly picky eater, will only eat one food. And Mrs. Peters, the mother, is just so kind to her children. And she caters to their needs. And she makes um, whatever they want. And But by the end of the book, she is frazzled and at her wit's end because it's just seven children and seven different dishes every day. And they just come up with such a fun solution to that problem. But it's the combination of Marianne Hoberman's text, which is told in verse, really just pitch perfect, beautiful. And then Marla Frazee's um, illustrations, which are... I she is one of my favorite children's book Me illustrators. Too. Me yes. Too. She's just fantastic. And there's one scene in particular in that book um where Mrs. Peters is standing in the middle of her kitchen and she has bread falling out of the oven and she has a pile of clean clothes on the kitchen table and just it it is utter chaos. And I think I've just felt like her at times. And so I look at that picture and I just feel like someone knows what I'm going through. So so that is my first one. I really love that book, too. Um, I was talking to my class yesterday in class and I was saying one of the things I love about children's books for me is that they can relate to so many people on so many different levels. And if I was going to have to pick something that indicates a quality children's book, it would be a book that did that, right? If it if it's only good for like a three-year-old, then, you know, there, right. y- you may have to analyze kind of, you know, is this really, you know, the stellar children's book? But a book like that where a mom can relate to the frazzledness, but the kids can also relate to the picky eaterness and all that kind of stuff, a whole family can relate to it, that shows that it's a good children's book. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you, were, you were right. Um, the second one, and this one might be a little more obscure. I don't really know. When I mention this book to other people, usually they haven't heard of it. But it's called The Circus Ship by Chris Van Dusen. Do you know this I one? I know Chris Van Dusen. I'm not thinking of that particular book. Once you start talking about it, maybe right. I'll you maybe might come know to it. Yeah. Um, and actually, I love anything of yeah. his. Um, he is another one who writes in verse and does a really good job with it. And his pictures, they just always are so full of light. I just love his illustrations as well. But the circus ship is actually based on a true story about a circus ship that went, um, that sunk and went down and the animals went, um, saved themselves basically onto this island and the circus ship owner tried to find them. After that, and he was kind of a mean guy and um, a little bit abusive, and so they don't want to go back with him, and so they hide on the island. And of course, most of that is fictitious, but the fact that a circus ship went down is true. And 
it's just so fun. At the end, they're all hiding in the village, all the animals. There are 15 of them. And my kids could look at that spread um, in, for hours because you just can find the different animals hiding. And they're um, so creatively put into the picture. And so that has been a fun one, too. So those are my top two, actually. Those are the two that I would read over and over again and never get tired of. That is amazing. And I'm, I'm impressed that you can narrow it down because I have a really hard time doing that. Thank you so much, Amy. It's been Thank a pleasure you. chatting. Amy Johnson is an avid reader and mommy blogger. Now I'm going to step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life. Today, I've got Kirsty Kirkland, the Provost Elementary School librarian, to talk about school musicals. I'm Kirsty Kirkland, and I work at Provost Elementary, and I get to direct the elementary school musical. Okay, so no, this is just not a play. It is the elementary this school is musical. A musical. Okay. So, yes. So what does that entail? It entails, well, I'm trying to teach the kids how to be professional as well as follow instructions. So before I do any audition, so they do have to audition for this musical, and it's for fourth through sixth grade only, I send home a note telling, you know, all of my rule expectations, if there's any behavior issues, exactly what will happen. And then because I'm not there to babysit them. And then they have to sign a contract saying that they will come to all rehearsals, that they'll keep the rules, the behavior expectations, because I have hundreds of kids that try out. And I can only put, I usually choose a musical that has you know, 30 speaking parts. And then I try and put about 60, 65 kids in it because that's how many fit on our stage. And so when you <laughs> have a small stage, yeah. you can't put as many kids in, but I want musicals and plays and theater are so good for kids in developing confidence, in developing speaking skills and conversations in building new friendships with people they never would have talked to before amongst all ages. And in learning, you know, creativity and how to put take something that's written on paper and turn it into something you can actually see and watch and visualize. And it also teaches them dedication and commitment and responsibility because they have to show up to these rehearsals. They are required to memorize lines by themselves. And we only have time to teach the dances once. And then I, I video it and send it to their homes, you know, email it to them. And then they have to keep practicing it on their own because we only get about 20 rehearsals in before we perform. Oh, wow. That's amazing. But I'm also <laughs> not somebody who will let a bad musical slide. Yeah. So we try and act really professional. They don't run around. They don't goof off. And we talk about stage presence as well as I think this helps them with presentations. As they get older, they know you stand still. You don't fidget with your hair. You don't punch people next to you. You know, it's like Important life it's a very yes. professional, <laughs> you know, place to be. Yeah. And it's so much fun to watch these kids as they grow and they learn and they develop and they think they can't do it. It's too scary to get in front of 500 people and sing a solo and then they do it and it's amazing the confidence that they all of a sudden have. And I love putting in last year when I did the musical, probably three quarters of my cast were introverts and extremely shy. But they did it because I told them the story of my daughter who tried out for her first musical in third grade and ran out crying because she was too scared. But I made her try again in fifth grade and then she ended up loving it. So I told them it's 
that I would try to not make it scary, that we would have fun. And we do have fun and we have snacks and we play games and we dance around. And But when it's time to work, they're ready to work. Yeah. I love so. that you can get 65 kids in a room and actually accomplish that because I think some people would just think of the chaos that would ensue when that would happen. So I love that that there's that wonderful structure to it. So what are the kinds of musicals that you put on? What where do you get your material? Do you, do, uh, are you I the read writer? through <laughs> No, I wish I was. You totally should be. <laughs> I wish I was. That would take a lot of extra time for my family. <laughs> but I've gone through so many musicals online and I settled on BB Press. If you've ever heard of them, Beat by Beat Press, who's got some great musicals with a lot of parts. There are quite a few musicals you can get that only have 20 people in it and like one lead, which I don't like for elementary. Their first introduction to musical, to theater should be where everybody has a chance to shine. So even my kids that are in, in ensemble, I always make sure that they have one part where it's them, that they yeah. get to shine, that they are the star for yeah. just that minute. And Beat by Beat Press, you know, their musicals have 30 different speaking parts, which is fantastic yeah. for these kids. And there's not just one person who gets to stand out. It's all of these kids. They get a chance to be the center of attention for just yeah. that moment. So what is the reception that you get? I mean, you say you have 500 people in the audience. So I I assume you get a huge, oh, amazing last reception. Last year, we were packed standing room only for Space Pirates that we did. And we had some families that didn't even go to the school, but they came back for all three of our performances. <laughs> so I'm guessing it was good. It was positive. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was really positive. And the kids did fantastic. It was also the first time that I've introduced um, kids into being running all the tech too. Oh, very. So nice. they called the show. They ran. They put the mics on. They ran the sound. They ran the curtain. They ran the lights. So I taught them all the these kids that didn't want to be on stage in front of everybody, also got their chance to shine by running very all the tech cool. stuff. You know, very cool. So and they have to apply for that kind of like you do a job yeah. and do like a little interview and then I choose who gets to do it based on responsibility and and how they do. So. That is so neat. I love that you open that kind of extensively. As you finish these up, what are some of the things that the kids say to you about their experience doing these musicals? Oh, they wish that every day was rehearsal day. <laughs> that's, that's the most recent. Or they'll come in during recesses and be like, can we practice with you? I'm like, don't you want to go play? No, we want to, we want to sing. <laughs> Help us memorize lines. Oh, they I just, love it. They love it. And a lot of them want to go on and try these arts, you know, being choir now or go into the theater program in middle school and, you know, give it a try because they've never succeeded or they felt like they never succeeded at anything until that moment or that point in time, which is fabulous. Well, and that, I think that is foundationally for me, the one that, you know, the success that they've, they've accomplished something so beautiful. What about the other teachers and your principal? What, what feedback do they give you? I wanted this program to be something that was fun and enjoyable and kids went away from feeling good about themselves. And so last year, the teachers, they were very enthusiastic. They said it was one of the best shows they'd seen. Very entertaining. Nobody fell asleep. So that's good. Yes. That's you know, like, in theater, that's like the pinnacle, right? <laughs> no stage very in the well. You'd have, yeah. you'll have to come see it March 22nd, 23rd, I, and 25th I, I, if you want to come will, see it. I will definitely have to come see it because I want to see it. <laughs> it's so cool. But yeah, we're doing yeah. one called Tut Tut this year based very on cool. 
King Tut, the youngest oh, pharaoh. Very so fun. it's kind of the Prince and the Pauper. Oh, how story. cool. Okay, that sounds very cool. Okay, so. yes, I may have to be part of your <laughs> standing room only audience because it's fabulous. I I really appreciate you expressing this experience because, you know, the arts are so important in our schools and it just it just goes to show those skills that they can learn from these kinds of experiences go well beyond, you know, being in a musical or, you know, even if these kids never want to be on stage again, they've learned some really important lessons and some really important things that are going to make them better people and better part of your school community and ultimately better part of the community in general. Right. And seeing that they can do something that's hard. And when you put in a lot of hard work, you can get some really good feedback, you know, like it can be worth it, Yeah, but you have to stick it out to the end. Sage advice for all of us, <laughs> right? <laughs> sage advice for all of us. Hard things, sticking it out to the end. It's a good thing. And particularly for kids of that age, something so important for them to learn. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I'd like to thank Kirsty for coming around the librarian's table with me today. We've had a great show. First, we talked with Vicki Elin about the Wonderwood College Bridge Program. Then we had Andy Ellis in the studio to talk about how she writes hard stories. Our last guest was mommy blogger Amy Johnson, and we talked about the importance of having a good picture book. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here on Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us. Mm -hmm.